morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where you can enjoy curbside pickup and take advantage of limited walk-in hours. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Alexander McCall Smith, author of the number one ladies detective agency series and the latest book in that series, How to Raise an Elephant. I spoke with Sandy at a virtual bookmarks event, and I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. I'd love to start by talking about your background a little bit. And what was it like to move from Africa to Scotland at the age of 17? Well, uh, I, was, I was brought up in, in I suppose, uh, rather peculiar circumstances. I spent my, my childhood in, in the middle of Africa, um, but my parents were, were, were British. And uh, so there was a sense that, that that would be what would happen to us. And uh, um, so it was, it was something that I anticipated. Uh, it, it gave me, uh, I suppose, the advantage um, of... Um, uh, seeing um, uh, a rather different part of the part of the world, and um, it it meant that although most of my life um, has been spent in in Scotland, uh, with uh, exception of a, a little time um, here and there, uh, I have um, uh, an affection for uh, for Africa, and uh, uh, it meant I suppose that. Eventually, when I reconnected with the the continent, uh, I uh, was ready to look at it with different eyes and to uh, ready, I suppose, to write about uh, one particular part of it, which was was Botswana. Mm -hmm. So I think um, it would would have been difficult for me to uh, have written the number one ladies detective agency uh, series for novels, Botswana novels, without that. Uh, without that initial experience, I suppose yeah. I'm able to do it. But I, I think it was uh, it was an important aspect of it for for me. You said that having been born in colonial Africa, you feel a sort of obligation to Africa and its people. Can you talk about how the notion of colonial guilt, for want of a better word, plays out in both your writing and your life? Well, I, I'm I'm not I'm not a particularly political uh, novelist in that I, I tend not to deal with political themes. <laughs> Many people who deal with that very very well uh, that that isn't really the the I suppose the subject matter that I I, I feel I, I have um, uh, much to much to say about. Uh, um, I, I think that uh, inevitably. Uh, if we contemplate the past, uh, we see um, in the past um, many, many things that um, now um, uh, are, are very difficult for, for, for people uh, to, um, to accept, uh, understandably so. 
and we see, uh, if you examine the past, you, and this really applies to, I suppose, whatever, whatever country one, one is talking about, uh, there are, are, are matters there in, uh, which, are, which are painful. Um, so certainly you, could, you look at the, the, the history of colonial, colonialism in, in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, and um, it's full of uh, injustice and, 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 and issues that are, that are um, most, most regrettable. Um, uh, but I, I think that um, having, having done that, um, there's, I suppose there is a, a general obligation um, on countries that have a colonial past to do what they can to, um, to, to make up for um, for, uh, for for that past, uh, I think obviously people have gone with their lives, and the, the, you, you can't you, you can't be paralysed by by guilt. But it uh, is something that one one needs to take um, take account of, and mm-hmm. I think that uh, it's very it's very difficult to to see any past era um, when we look at it with contemporary eyes to feel anything but regret and I suppose sorrow um, that would apply to to just about any 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 country every country has has I suppose it's dark it's dark past you have connections in in two countries very strong connections in Scotland where you live and in Botswana where you have founded a law school and set books. What do you see as the similarities between Scotland and Botswana? We focus so much on the differences, but do you see things that tie the two countries together? Well, yes, that's very interesting because I, I, I think, although um, I, I suppose most of my books now are set in, in Scotland or various, uh, and I suppose elsewhere, I write quite a lot about Australia at present and, and, and other places. But um, I think that uh, wherever you look in, in, in the world, uh, human life uh, is pretty much the same at one, mm-hmm. at one level, that most people are concerned about the same sort of things. They're concerned about leading their lives, uh, about um, making the best of the hand they're dealt with in this life. Uh, they're, they're concerned about family, they're concerned about getting on with their individual projects, etc. And these are things that are absolutely common to humanity, all humanity, wherever one, one is. And so I think that one could visit as an outsider, you could visit a country such as Botswana, and you would say, yes, I recognize all these factors in, in, in people's lives uh, here. Um, I think the, as far as Scotland is concerned, you're uh, there, there are specific specific factors uh, operating there. Uh, in that Scotland is is a small country. Uh, Scotland has a population of um, roughly five five million in that in in that area. So it, it's actually quite a small small co- country, and it's a small country uh, which uh, lives next door uh, to a considerably larger uh, country. And so uh, there are those issues about. Um, cultures which may be fragile or relatively fragile, uh, perhaps uh, in the past dominated unduly by a, 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 a dominant um, 
uh, dominant culture, larger culture. So there, there are in, interesting issues, uh, issues there. And Scotland can um, identify, I think people in Scotland can identify with, uh, with um, uh, cultures that are uh, perhaps um, not necessarily um, as, as assertive as, as some of the larger cultures. <laughs> Your relationship with Botswana has, it seems to me, been symbiotic. The country's provided you with inspiration for your most famous series, and you've given back to it in many ways, not the least the tourism that's created by your novels. What was it about Botswana in particular, of all the countries in Africa, that drew you to set your books there? Well, I, I suppose that there was a, a bit of a historical accident in, in that, and that I think that what, what we write about, and I'm sure, Charlie, you might say the same about, about your books, what we write, write about, we think we choose, but uh, often chooses us. And, uh, and I think that there, there may be uh, various uh, factors in, in, in one's history. There may be operation of chance, accident, and so on, serendipity which leads, leads one to write about something in particular. In the case of Botswana, I, I went to work in, in, in Botswana for a brief period. I had for some time, for some years, I'd looked after students from Botswana, Swaziland and Lesotho, who were in Scotland. We had an arrangement with the joint university of those countries. And so I'd looked after these students for, for years. And I went initially to Swaziland when I was on sabbatical and I worked there and then I was uh, asked to go uh, to the University of Botswana and and be involved in setting up a new legal education program there. And so that was my, my first real experience of the, the country, living and working there. And I was, I was bowled over by it. I was very struck by it. I was struck by the sheer decency of the people, the, 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 the niceness of the people, the, the kindness that I encountered. And I realized that this was a, a, a very admirable culture it's something that just really very special culture and it really appealed yes. to me and that's why i i cho i chose it it's a gentle country um it's been i suppose quite fortunate it hasn't had quite as difficult a past as many other countries in southern africa have have had and uh, it's also been it's been exceptional it's it has a very good human rights record um for the most part and uh, th those are aspects which I rather admired. Let's talk for a minute about your writing habit. Um, how did you start writing fiction? And what does your writing routine look like? Well, I, I, I've always been interested in writing fiction. I, I sent my first manuscript off to a publisher at the age of eight. It was about, oh, it was just a page or two, I think. And, uh, <laughs> Off I sent it. Uh, I forget what it was about. I have no idea what it was about. I remember the title. And I had a letter back from the publisher, which was very kind of him in the circumstances to write back to a child and, and, and thank him for sending a, a manuscript. Um, so I uh, always always felt that I, I would write. Um, and then, as is, is often the case where with, with, with writers, I, I had another career and I was a university professor, and I wrote in my spare time. And uh, I continued to do that uh, for, for some time. I wrote a, a large number of children's books while I was doing that. I wrote sort of 40 children's books. And then 
I started writing short stories and novels, and then I started in a, in a serious way to to write novels, and that's the point at which I had to uh, contemplate a, a career change. And mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. chair at the university, and uh, spent all my time writing. As far as my writing um, program is concerned, my schedule, um, you you all know full well as as a, a novelist yourself that you can't wait for the muse to come and tap you on the shoulder uh, because she doesn't. <laughs> I think uh, people people uh, 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 like to believe that the muse will come and say, "Oh, now here we are. Let's sit down and write a book." But uh, she's not in the business of doing that. Uh, so. Um, the person who's behind your shoulder most of the time is nemesis rather than uh, rather than uh, any of the uh, creative muses. So um, I I write every day. Uh, I have a regime. Uh, I tend to get up very early in the morning and I write in the small hours often. Uh, but uh, uh, other times I will write in, in the more civilized hours of the of the morning. Write about uh, two or three hours a day, something of that that sort. Uh, I feel if I, if the day goes past when I don't write, I feel a little bit itchy. I don't know whether you feel that. You feel as if you haven't done your time on the exercise bike, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about the number one ladies detective agency. How did that series get started? What was the genesis? Well, it it started in in a in a rather unexpected way. Uh, I. Um, it was actually when I was in, I think, in Swaziland, rather than when I was in Botswana, I would go over and visit friends in Botswana. And uh, I was, um, uh, I met through them, uh, I was staying with friends in a small village called Machudi, north of Gaborone, the capital. And uh, we went down to see this lady in the village. She was going to give them a chicken for the uh, Independence Day anniversary uh, lunch. And we went along and there was this woman uh, prepare uh, in in her in her yard, uh, ready to catch this unfortunate chicken, uh, which she chased around the yard and then delivered to to my friends. And I looked at her and I thought, I, I wonder what this this person's history is, uh, because uh, there she was, um, uh, running a rather nicely kept house and um, being very competent in this matter of catching and dispatching a chicken. And it occurred to me that I might one day write about a woman in Botswana who starts a little business. And that idea uh, was in my mind for quite a few years, many years, in fact. And then I sat down one day and wrote what I thought would be a short story about <laughs> called Mara Matswe, whose father leads her a herd of cattle and she, she um, sets up a little business. And um, I discovered I liked the character, so I made a novel of it, not knowing at that stage that this was going to turn into a, a very lengthy literary conversation with this yeah. Uh, lady. Yeah, and in fact, How to Raise an Elephant is the 21st book, I believe, in the series. Does it get harder or easier to write as you get that far into a series? Well, I, I think uh, in in a way it becomes it becomes easier because uh, when you're writing um, a series of novels, uh, you uh, obviously know the characters and the readers to an extent know the characters. You've got to 
got to, to make some introductions with each with each book, but effectively, uh, you feel that you've got a, a relationship with the characters. You know what the characters are going to 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 say in a way. Uh, they become more part of your subconscious, and of course, that I think is where fiction comes from: the subconscious mind. We as authors are just sitting there, uh, waiting to to receive the message from the sub subconscious. So I think it becomes a, a little bit a uh, little bit easier. Uh, you get very attached to to your characters. You get very attached to the the, the surroundings. Yeah, I think I find in writing one-off novels, one of the most difficult parts is to say goodbye to those characters. Uh, absolutely, and it's it's often a matter of regret. And you 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 feel that you you've settled down into uh, a relationship with the characters, mm -hmm. and you appreciate them, and you've got to end the end the thing. So uh, I I agree. It's 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 uh, it's it's a bit hard to end uh, a one-off novel. So tell us a little bit about the new book about how to raise an elephant. Well, how to raise an elephant um, uh, has, as its title suggests, an elephant in it, and it had rather a, an, an interesting uh, start in that one of the things that I've been doing over the last uh, four or five years is to um, have reader safaris in northern Botswana. There's a safari company that um, advertised these safaris that readers of the, of the books from all over the world would go, go along and uh, they would spend uh, the time with, with, with me in the, in the bush on the safari. We'd have a week together and that was wonderful from my point of view because I got to know many readers of the books and we we had all sorts of adventures in the Okavanga Delta and I'd been on one of those and I was leaving the town in that area Maung and uh, I noticed at the at the little airport there that there was a, a lady saying goodbye to a number of people who were wearing what one might call game conservation outfits you know the the usual, the usual game, um, book bush uh, wear, and uh, I wondered who who this was, and I found myself sitting next to her on the small aeroplane, taking us out of that that place, and uh, we got talking, and it transpired that she came from Dallas, and that uh, Dallas is a is a is a city that I happen to know because I've been a visiting professor at a university yeah. in Dallas on two occasions. And so we were chatting away, and uh, she told me what she did, which was uh, she had set up uh, a, a little um, uh, elephant orphanage uh, there for baby elephants whose mothers had been shot by poachers. Mm. And of course, that's a very sad thing that the poachers come, they shoot the, the female elephant, and the, 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 the infant, the calf, is, is left there, either will die of dehydration or be attacked by predators. A very sad, sad thing. So they take these little elephants and they bring them up. Uh, they provide them with a home. And the idea is to reintegrate them into the, into the wild, whether attached to another herd or in a herd of their, their own in, in, in due course. And uh, it's, it struck me as being such a, a lovely, moving story that I decided to Put it into the next Mara Motswe, uh, Motswe book. So we have Mara Motswe encountering one of these 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 orphaned elephants and having to get it to 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 this orphanage. The the the, the person there in in Dallas is Deborah Stevens, 
and uh, she has this charity called Elephant Havens. And it's, a, it's just such a nice, nice example, I suppose, of human kindness to uh, an animal that is increasingly under pressure as man encroaches on the environment, the elephant's environment, there's more competition for space. And space is something that the, the world is running out of, really. And elephants are great big creatures who need a lot of space. And yet they're, they're very, very intelligent um, animals with emotions, with uh, memories. Of course, it's always said that elephantine memories are, are great, but they do have very good, uh, very good memories. And uh, they, they develop a relationship with, with human beings. They're capable of understanding human beings. They, they have language. They have a language uh, which they're capable of communicating over vast distances. They can send yeah. messages to one another over vast distances. All of this is, is really quite, uh, uh, makes one think that uh, we should be very careful in our dealings with elephants. I'm fascinated by the way authors who write books in series have to think both ahead and behind. And I always think about the fact that Agatha Christie planned the death of Hercule Poirot many years in advance. So I have to ask, have you thought about ever ending the series or how the series might end? We're not asking for spoilers, but just how do you think ahead? Well, I, I, I have no idea at all of, the, of a terminus here. I'm not planning to, uh, not planning to end these books other... Uh, other than uh, through what one might describe as natural processes. In other words, I'm prepared to carry on writing these as long as, uh, as, as possible, as long as I can do so. Somebody did ask me a few years back, somebody said, uh, when are you uh, planning to end the number one nation executive agency series? And I, I replied that, well, uh, it, it depends on how long I go on for and where, where I come to an end. And then uh, this person said, well, when's that going to be? And so <laughs> I was I was unable to answer. <laughs> uh, you taught us so much about Africa in the series, and often what we learn comes through conversations between Precious Ramatsawe and her friends. Yes. Can you give us a hint about some of what we might learn in this new book? Well, there's one, one of the, the issues which comes up in, the, in this new book is that Maramatsu is approached by a very distant relative who wants to uh, get some money from her in order to help another distant relative with um, an operation, a hip replacement operation. And uh, I think what is going on there is, is something that you find uh, certainly in, in traditional African society, um, an obligation a notion of obligation to help um, people with whom you have some sort of some sort of bond or relationship or, or whatever. So what I'm writing about there is, I suppose, the rather more communitarian uh, nature of of many African uh, societies, and that's something that uh, that people in our liberal individualistic societies don't necessarily uh, realise um, that. Um, uh, notions of obligation to care for others who, with whom we may share some sort of rela uh, distant relationship or whatever uh, are quite strong. So uh, that, that's, that's one of the things which I think would mm -hmm. that subject. You've been quoted as saying, 
in Africa, strong, independent-minded, and intuitive women play a very important role in their nation's lives, something I think we can all aspire to. Can you talk about that and about how those women led you to create Mara Matsue? Yes, well, I, I'd, met, I'd met many uh, people like Mara Matsui in, in Botswana. Um, the, it, it's rather interesting. The, the, that particular society, along with many other um, sub-Saharan African societies, was, uh, was quite pa patriarchal uh, in that the uh, women um, had, had quite a struggle to assert themselves and to uh, perhaps get their just position in society. A fairly familiar story in in so many in so many societies, and uh, yet uh, I was always struck when I when I looked at this at just how tremendously competent uh, the women were, and there were these um, m m marvelous women who who achieved so much uh, rather against the odds. Mm -hmm. And um, Mara Matsui is an example of that. So, in a, in a sense, uh, yes, she's she's a feminist, but not in. Uh, I suppose one wouldn't describe her as, as a particularly um, uh, aggressive uh, person in, 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 her, in her beliefs in that, but nonetheless she believes in the proper position uh, of, of women um, and uh, how women should be able to fulfill themselves in, in their working lives and what many of the things which, which we've, we've, we've seen achieved in, in, in recent, uh, comparatively recent years. So. Uh, yeah, that's that's something which I I did encounter, and so Mara Matsui actually is is a credible example of that. Somebody who who really gets things uh, gets yeah. things. It's interesting that some um, aid pro programs in 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 African countries um, have concentrated on giving grants to, to small grants to women uh, to set up a small business, and these are very successful. They tend yeah. to be that if you if you say say okay we'll buy you a sewing machine um, or we'll buy you um, three goods or whatever um, that sort of micro uh, assistance can can be very much more effective than than a massive project to to mm -hmm. to, to build very big impressive things going down to uh, to 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 use the talents of uh, individual women. Do you see Maro Matsue as a philosopher? I mean, I almost think of her in those terms. And if so, what is her philosophy of life? Yes, I think she is. She is a philosopher. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, she she wears her philosophy very lightly. Uh, her philosophy of life would be, um, I suppose, uh, kindness and mm -hmm. consideration, respect for others. She talks about the old Botswana values, and she says. The old Botswana values are, are, are great. You know, we've always had those. We don't need any newfangled uh, uh, ideas of how to behave. Just the old, old Botswana values. And she's got a point uh, because the old Botswana values, in fact, the government of Botswana has talked about that in the past, about how these values of, of respect for others, res uh, respect, for example, for older people, uh, concern for others, helping people, and so on. These are all there in, the, in, in, in a code of, of, of behavior, um, and uh, Mara Matsui, she, she believes in, um, I suppose, in being kind to people. She doesn't believe in punishing people unduly. She doesn't really, she's not retributive at all. 
and she she says in in one of the books um a few books ago she she says you don't change people by shouting at them and she's actually really absolutely right about that uh, we, we we don't change anybody by by shouting at them it doesn't yeah. work i imagine that most of your readers have never Botswana. Some of them have, but but many of us have never been to Africa, and and for us, Africa remains something of a mystery. And yet, Maro Matsue has resonated so loudly with readers around the world. Why do you think it is that we connect so directly to her? Well, I I think uh, that's very very interesting question, Charlie. I think that uh, the reason why she resonates in that way is uh, I think uh, her kindness uh, in that we live in a world uh, which in many respects is a veil of tears. Uh, we live in a world in which confrontation and conflict uh, seem to be all about us. And, and, and the, last, the last few years of the world's history, we seem to have had an awful lot of that. There's been a great deal of conflict and, and, and uh, aggressive behavior of one sort or another. And people don't like that. I, I think that most people actually uh, would prefer to have a world in which courtesy and kindness are, are, are more center stage. And I think Mara Motswe is about that. She's, she's a kind a kind woman. She's the sort of person we would like to sit down and have a cup of tea with. And that's, <laughs> uh, that's, that's probably why she's, she's popular. She says at one point she could not imagine being anything but an African. What does being an African mean to Marawatsway? Well, I think uh, I think she's proud of her she's proud of her country, um, and that's something which which I uh, saw. I mean, I'm an outsider writing about uh, Botswana here, but uh, outsiders often observe things uh, that uh, perhaps uh, people in their own country take for granted and may not remark upon. But I I um, noticed there was a terrific uh, pride in Botswana amongst many people I, I met in, in Botswana. And I found that really quite, quite touching. It wasn't, a, um, it wasn't a, an aggressive pride. It was just a, a satisfaction, prior, proud and achieved. And, and they achieved great things since their independence in 1966. Uh, they created a very stable state with very good infrastructure and um, so there was uh, there was uh, a, a, a pride in that, and Mara Motsvi um, feels that, and she feels she feels comfortable in in being what she she is, which I suppose most people, uh, if you push most people, uh, most people who are resolved in this world will say, I'm happy to be what I am, mm-hmm. and that's quite quite healthy. Uh, I think we, we 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 don't need to go around apologising for for. Who we are, we we are who we are, and um, I suppose that we uh, we we should um, um, try to 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 make the best of that. Yeah, we have so many fans of books for younger readers here at Bookmarks that I would love for you to tell us briefly about the young, precious Ramatsue books. Yes, I, I wrote a number of, of books about uh, precious Ramatsue. Uh, I think there were four of those. Uh, about how she she was um, uh, showed her ability as a detective at an early age. Um, 
it seemed to me that it would be fun to imagine what she was like aged eight or whatever it is. And uh, I, I loved writing those. Uh, they're be beautifully illustrated by Ian McIntosh, who's an uh, illustrator who does quite a lot of my books, does many of the jacket covers of my books and so on. And he really did the most beautiful um, woodcut-type illustrations of Mara uh, mm -hmm. uh, life as a, as a little girl. And, and she, she gets involved in all sorts of uh, um, adventures of the sort that the younger readers might, might like to hear about. Do you ever find yourself, um, I, I ask this again, when people are writing books in series, that you want to go in a certain direction, but you find that something you've written in the past sort of closes off certain avenues? Yes, yes, it, it, that can happen. Uh, I write a, a, ser a real serial novel, the Scotland Street novels, mm -hmm. yeah. 14 in those books. And uh, those, those books actually arose uh, after a, a meeting I had in San Francisco at uh, Amy Tan's house. She gave a party. One of the guests uh, there was Armstead Mopan. And uh, I was talking to Armstead and he said, whatever you do, don't write a serial novel in a newspaper. Because <laughs> <laughs> he'd done that with, of course, yeah. with Tales of the City in San Francisco. I went back to Scotland and I wrote an article for one of the papers in Scotland saying that I'd been in San Francisco and I'd had this conversation. And uh, the editor of, a, of the Scotsman newspaper invited me to lunch. And he, he said, you're on, write a, a serial novel. And so I started to do that. And uh, I've been doing that now for uh, over 15 years. It's, it goes on uh, and, and on. And I really enjoy it. But the interesting thing about that, uh, Charlie, is that things will happen in the, in the course of that uh, that, that I, I will rather regret. And I regret it. Uh, the loss of one of the characters who was a gangster from Glasgow called Lard O'Connor, a man of very considerable girth. And uh, Lard O'Connor, I had him come over to Edinburgh and uh, he unfortunately um, uh, expires in, in Edinburgh. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I have bumped off very few of my characters. Uh, the two I've had who who've uh, shuffled off this mortal coil on my watch. And I feel rather bad about it because I'd love to write more about Laude Connor, but it's too late. Now, you may remember the famous soap opera Dallas, where I think they managed to get around that little difficulty by saying the whole thing was a dream or whatever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody believed that. <laughs> Well, I, I want to ask one question that's coming from one of our listeners, and that is about the issue of cultural appropriation. Have, have you ever had difficulties with people saying, how can a white man write about a black woman? I mean, I know what my answer is when people ask me, how can I write about characters who are different from myself? But, but how, how do you deal with that? Well, I, I understand the point that people are making about that, and I think that you have to be very, very careful that when you're writing about people other than yourself, uh, you have to you you have to write with uh, with consideration and and respect, and and not take it upon yourself to um, change the story, so to speak, or to misinterpret the story. But I, I think, having said that, uh, in in my particular case, I'm writing about. Uh, people who happen to live in Botswana and 
happen to be uh, citizens of that of that country. Uh, I'm not writing. Um, I'm not writing uh, social realism. I'm not writing uh, critically. Uh, that would be different. I think that that would be uh, a totally different uh, issue if I were um, setting out to comment on their politics and and matters of that sort. I'm, I'm not. I'm not doing that. So. Um, I'm, I'm writing uh, in in uh, in a celebratory way about uh, yeah. about uh, people there, and uh, I think that authors are entitled to do that. I think that everybody should be able to write about other people. It would be, I think, very limiting if we just wrote about about people like ourselves. Absolutely, we'd, we'd never expand. And, uh, I think so. Uh, I, although I do understand the issue. Uh, I think that one has to be cautious in, in dealing with this issue. <laughs> You've said everyone has their grim side, but it shouldn't be the dominant one. How has that philosophy for you played out over the past eight or nine months of this pandemic in 2020? Well, well I, I think that uh, all of us have, have, have had our lives changed by, by this uh, pandemic, which has been a, a period of, of, of sorrow and, and and trial for so many people. Um, I think that uh, obviously the, the consequences have been very sad, economic consequences and the personal consequences, uh, so many tragedies in, in, in a pandemic. Um, I think though um, that uh, you can uh, take from any difficult experience of this sort, you can take something positive there is something positive happening in the in the background and I think that uh, because our lives have been restricted by this uh, we've um, had occasion to consider um, just how excessively busy we were yeah. and how we have time for reflection I think that that's a major major difference I know that when the uh, lockdown first lockdown started in in in, in the, the UK um, I happen to be reading uh, a couple of books about monasticism and the continued relevance of monasticism in the 21st century. Um, and uh, one of the books was dealt with that, and the other book was Patrick Lee Fermo's wonderful story of his visit to monasteries in France in the 1950s. And um, I, I was ready to, to have a, a period of reflection. Um, the, uh, Lee Fermo talks in that book about solitude and mm. how little solitude there is in our in our lives today. And I think many people actually have have felt that they've read more during this yeah. this period. They've they've reflected more on, um, and I think we've 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 looked at issues of sustainability uh, and um, authenticity. In, in our lives, we've realized that we can't continue to um, exploit the world uh, to the degree to which we have uh, been exploiting it in the past. Yeah. The, the world is too fragile to sustain that. So I hope that we don't go back to our bad old ways too quickly. <laughs> we probably will, but, but I, think, uh, I think that people have had a, had, a, had a real shock, which has made them think about these matters. Yeah, yeah. Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. 
You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give us a little insight into you and your writing life. So if you're ready, we'll begin. Right. What word do you love to work into your writing? Attenuated. When I'm describing the, the sky, attenuated blue. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? I suppose I get a bit jumpy um, about some uh, expression. I don't like it when dialogue becomes too naturalistic mm -hmm. and people put in like, you know, people keep saying like in their yeah, comments. Yeah. I don't like it when I see it on the page. Yeah. Where's your favorite place to write? Favorite place to write? Mm -hmm. uh, probably here. Yeah. Uh, I'm speaking to you from my study in Edinburgh. Yeah. Where could you never write? I couldn't write in a um, in a soulless hotel or motel. I can write in hotels, but I don't think I could write in a very plastic, soulless hotel room. Mm -hmm. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? <laughs> I'll tell you. Uh, it's it's the distinction between that and which. Oh, yes. <laughs> what was the first book you remember reading? I remember a lovely little book I had when I was a very small boy. I must have been four or five. It was called The Boy's Book of Merchant Shipping. Hmm. And it was a very peculiar book with pictures <laughs> of ships and their tonnage. <laughs> what are you reading now? Uh, I'm reading um, a rather interesting book on um, uh, poetry, uh, meter in, in, in poetry, James Fenton's book on English poetry. What book would you like to have written? I would have liked to have written Nadine Gordon as the conservationist, but I also would have liked to have written, written um, uh, oh, there, there are a lot. There's Eve, yeah, Evelyn yeah. trilogy, I wish I'd written that. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? I suppose I'd quite like to write an, an historical novel, um, but I don't think I, I ever will write. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? <laughs> well, uh, I like it uh, when readers say, uh, I suppose just a simple, simple thing. I enjoy your books. May I tell you what one reader did tell me? some years ago when I was on tour in the United States, Rita came up to me and she wanted to say something nice. And she said to me, let me tell you something. You're going to be much more successful posthumously. <laughs> well, on that note, we will say thank you so much for joining us at Bookmarks and on Inside the Writer's Studio. Uh, the new book is How to Raise an Elephant. And uh, I commend it to all of our listeners and watchers. Sandy McCall-Smith, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Charlie. Thank you. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. 
To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro.fm. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro.fm supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. For the next month, I'm going to be doing something I don't do very often on Inside the Writer Studio, and that's taking a little break. So I'll see you back here on January 15th with a whole new slate of writers for 2021. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.